This is the word of the Lord. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you do not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Among the uh, many passages that we have in Scripture, I think Jesus' parables are the most misunderstood. The parables are perhaps the most common and familiar. We know all the endings and we know all the punchlines. But for some reason, the message of the parables seem to evade us. And I think that's certainly the case for this story, the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Now, about a decade ago, I was interested in the parables, and so I, I, I took up a study of the parables. I started reading it, uh, reading it carefully, and doing a study on it. And ever since, I, I started to understand what Jesus was teaching with the parables, and this parable in particular. Ever since I really understood what this parable was teaching, this story about the kingdom of God has left an indelible mark in my life. And from that point on, I have tried uh, to live by this, and I've tried to do church by this. 
And this has been, uh, in some sense, the, the theme song of my life. And so today, being the first Sunday in 2018, I would like to set the tone for the year by sharing this story with you. And so please, uh, lend me your ears. Now the story begins with the master going away. I have the verses up for you. But the story begins with uh, the master going away. And um, we don't know why. But he goes away and he entrusts his uh, property to his servants. Now here in the ESV it says property, but perhaps a better way to understand it is business capital. He gives his capital to his servants. And he gives it in his, to his servants in the form of something called a talent. Now a talent during this time is actually a large sum of money. To be somewhat precise, it's, it's about 30 uh, kilograms of silver. And that 30 kilograms of silver is probably equivalent to about 20 years of uh, a day laborer's wage. So 20 year salary, you can, you can, you can see that it, it's quite a large sum of money. Now the master, as, it, as, it, as, as verses 14 and 15 tells us, the master gives five talents to one person, two talents to another, and one talent to the third servant. And, it, and the passage tells us that the, that the master does so each according to his ability. Now it seems that the master knows his servants well. He knows his servants well, and he gives to them these talents. And then the passage tells us he went away immediately. He goes away immediately. In other words, he gives the talents to his servants, and he doesn't give instructions on what to do. He gives it to them, and he leaves. And so this parable is not really teaching obedience. Jesus gives no instructions, or the master gives no instructions. So this is not really a test of obedience. It seems to be a test of something else. Now the passage tells us uh, that the, okay, the passage tells us, uh, if you continue on, that uh, the servant who received the five talents, he goes at once, or he goes immediately. He goes immediately. And the text says that they worked. Now, it doesn't say that the servants worked, but what it says is it says that the talents worked. They put the talents to work. A good way to understand it is they invested the money. And they yielded 100%. The second servant does the same thing, yielding the same results. But the third servant, he goes out and he digs a hole in the ground and he hides, or he hides, his master's money in the ground. Now the text tells us, after some time, the master, he returns. And the servants, he calls all of his servants to him, and he now settles accounts with them. Now, when he calls the servants, the first two come forward and they say, listen, master, you gave me five talents, you gave me two talents, and look what I've done. I have brought five more, I have brought two more. And the master starts to rejoice. He says this, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now this is a real interesting response. There's something strange going on here. 
Because this master, he's happy. But he's not happy because he's richer. He's not happy because he has more money. Because if you see what goes on is after he sees, oh, this servant has, has you know, put this money to work and he's doubled it, what does he do? He actually gives it back. This, this statement at the end, enter into the joy of your master, it's the master actually giving it back. I'm going to entrust you over so much more and he gives it back. See, you know, servants aren't supposed to share their master's joy. And we, we think that, we, we can tell by this story that this, this master is a strange master. He's a little different. He's unique. You see, we should have known that something was up when this master, when he goes away for the journey, on the journey for the first time, he gives his servants the talents. Usually, if someone goes away for a long time, they would entrust their capital or their investments to the right person, not to servants. You would go to Prudential or BlackRock, right? You would go to Wells Fargo or some of these places, and that's who you would entrust your money with. But this master, he gives it to his servants. So we see that this master, he's unique. He rejoices not because he's richer, and we see, we, we, can know, we know this because the master, he gives the same commendation. He gives the same praise to the first and the second servant. The first servant raised five more, and the second service servant raised two more, but he gives them the same praise. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. He doesn't, tell to the, he doesn't say to the second servant, hey, you only got two more? Listen, the one before you, he brought me five more. Okay, you, you did an okay job. No, he praises them both in the same way. See, the joy that this master has doesn't come from the fact that he has more, but it seems to come from something else. And we're going to take a look at that. We see that, and then we move on to the third servant. Now, the third servant... As we have uh, read, he goes and he hides the talent in the ground. And we might be thinking, wow, what a dumb thing to do. But actually, this third servant, he's actually doing what every Roman Greco citizen would consider the prudent thing to do. He's actually doing the right thing, right? In, in first century, in, in the Roman Greco world, you don't put your money in your house. Where do you put it? You put it in a field. This third servant further, he's not a dishonest man. There's no hint that this man used the money for his own ends. No, he's honest and he's cautious. He's being very, very careful. But the master is not happy. And this is what the master says. He says this, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I have scattered no seed. If you knew this, then you have ought to invest in my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was mine with interest. Now, there's two important things to note about this master's response to the third servant. The first thing is the master describes this servant as slothful. Slothful. 
Slothful doesn't mean lazy. It doesn't mean lazy. This word of slothful um, is actually um, from the Greek uh, verb okneo. And this word okneo actually means, doesn't mean lazy, but it means shrinking back. It means holding back, or it means to hesitate. It means to delay. In other words, it means to, 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 to pull yourself back, to restrain yourself, to be hesitant, to not act. This is what the master describes the third servant as. He describes him as a hesitant man. He describes him as a timid man. He describes this man as someone who shrinks who shrinks. So this word is not really about the physical um, act of being just lazy, but it, it, it speaks of the inward attitudes that lead to inactivity and passivity. The language is not laziness, but it's more fearful, it's more timid. You know, this man, you mean, I you know, I, I should ask, you know, this, you know, the master says, why didn't you put my money at least in the bank? So at least I would have interest, right? And, and you know, you have to think, what's the easiest thing to do? Is it easier to just go to the bank, put the money in the bank, or is it easier to go out at night, in the middle of the night, make sure that no one's watching, go out with the shovel, take this 30, you know, kilogram worth of uh, silver, go out where you can't find anyone, dig a hole in the ground on that rocky, hard Palestinian ground, dig a hole, put that money in, mark it so that you know exactly where it is, and then when the master comes back, you go and dig that up again. Which one is easier? Right. This servant wasn't lazy, but he was fearful. He was holding back. He was timid. The second thing to do, second thing to note about the master's response is, he says this, why didn't you put my money in the bank so at least I can receive interest? But do you know what the Old Testament says about lending money with interest? The Old Testament, in fact, forbids it in, numbers of, in, in a number of places. You can find it in Proverbs, in Exodus, in Leviticus. The Old Testament actually forbids a Torah-keeping Jew from lending money with interest. The Old Testament says, if you're going to lend money, lend it without interest. Don't receive interest. And so this man, he's actually a good, law-abiding Jew. He knows that he isn't supposed to get interest on money lent. And so this servant, he didn't act in an immoral way. He was honest. He was prudent. He was diligent. But what was his problem? He was timid. He was afraid. Perhaps he was afraid of reproach. He was afraid of rebuke when he lost money or if he, in the event that he lost money. Maybe he just wanted to play it safe. He just said, you know what? I'm just going to play it safe. But actually, the text tells us that his real fear, what was he really afraid of? The text tells us that he was afraid of his master. What does the servant say? He says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. 
I knew you to be a hard man. You are someone who reaps where you do not sow and gather where you, do not, where, where you scatter no seed. And he says, because I know you're such a hard man, I was afraid. I was scared. I was scared of you. And so I hid the talent in the ground. The servant is afraid of the master. You know what the master says? Do you know how he responds? He says this, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I have scattered no seed. What does the master, how does he respond? He says this, yes, that's true. I am someone who I like to gather where I, I like to reap where I do not sow. I like to, you know, to harvest where I have not scattered seed. You are right in that. But what does he leave out? This is where I could use some of the function on this thing, right? What, what does he do, right? That's cool, right? Hard man. Hard man. The master doesn't repeat that. He doesn't say, yes, I am a hard man. No, he doesn't. Basically, he, he leaves that part out and he says, listen, this is who I am. You interpret it as being hard. But I'm not hard. The master in a sense is saying, yes, I am someone who seeks opportunity where there seems to be none. I bring something out of nothing. You have interpreted that as harshness, but that's not who I am. I am not a hard man. You know, generally speaking, you know, timid people, timid people say this about people who are not. Timid people say this about people who are opportunistic. They say this about people who are aggressive, right? They say, oh, these people are, they're, they're too hard. They're, they're risk takers. They're too aggressive. You see, you got to see that there's a difference that's going on. The first two servants, what did they do? They knew their master well. They knew that their master was someone who sought opportunity when there seemed to be none, and they acted. But the third servant... They knew their master, the third servant, he knew his master, but he misunderstood. He mischaracterized his master. And this third servant acted out of fear. The third servant didn't understand and appreciate the expansive, the, op, the, the opportunistic or the optimistic heart of the master. As one New Testament scholar put it, the third servant his, for the third servant, his master was a, just a distant and threatening stranger. Now, before we start talking about what this means, I think there, there's something that we have to be careful of. Because after I, um, after I taught this parable a number of times, I've, I've had a number of people come up to me and say, you know, this is exactly what I needed. They would say things like, you know what, I need to be more aggressive in life. I need to be less timid. And they start talking to me about, you know, just some of their thoughts. You know, I was thinking about buying this property, and I was a little afraid, but you know what? I think this message is telling me to go for it, right? They would say things like, you know what? I wanted to start a business, but I, I was just afraid. You know what? I, I, think, I think this is telling me to go for it. You know, I, and, and, you know, a number of people have said, you know, I, needed, I need this message of optimism, of, of being an opportunistic, of being an entrepreneur. I need this. 
If Jesus is an opportunist, you know, I have to be one too. And someone even asked me, like, hey, can you talk to my wife now? You know, like, you know, I want to do this, but, you know, my wife, she's, she's a little afraid. She's a little timid. I, I need you to, you know, talk to her about this. Listen, if you want to go start a business and go all in on things like Bitcoin or whatever, go ahead. Do it at your discretion. This parable isn't teaching that. Okay. Uh, you know, I think, I think for us to really understand what this parable is teaching, we have to understand what the talent represents, right? Because we know this parable, uh, the master represents Jesus, right? Someone who goes away and comes back, right? And we know who the servants represent. The, service, the servants are representing us, his people, the believers. But what does a talent represent? What does a talent represent? I think for the most part, you know, people in the church, they understand talent here in Matthew 25 as a gift, right? Or in, in, the, in the, the English translation, a talent, a gift that you have, right? And most of the time we hear this as saying, you know what? Jesus has given us gifts. He's given us talents. He's given us abilities and opportunities. And what we have to do is we have to use these gifts, we have to use these talents to serve God and his people. That is what being a faithful servant is like. But I think that interpretation is just too convenient. To, to equate talent, which is a sum of money, with talent, our abilities, that, that's, that's too convenient. I want you to notice what the master says when he takes this talent away. In verses 28 and 29, what does he say? He says, take this talent away and give it to the person who has ten and then he says this, everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. But the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This statement, this exact statement, everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. And the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This statement is actually found elsewhere in Matthew. It's found in Matthew 13. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 13. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But the one who has not, even when he has, will be taken away. Matthew 13, what is Jesus talking about? He who has, more will be given, the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken. What is Jesus talking about here? The secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 25 and the parable of the talents. The talents does not represent the gifts that we have. But what it actually represents is the secrets of the kingdom of heaven that we have received. That's why the punishment is so severe for the third servant. When the third servant just br brings the same talent back, what does the master say? Listen, you are wicked and slothful. And what does he do? The, the story ends, verse 30, cast that worthless servant outside to the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That weeping and gnashing of teeth, that place of outer darkness is actually the figurative expression for hell. Jesus, this master, is casting the servant outside into the outer darkness, into hell. And, you know, for some of us who say, wow, just because I didn't use my talents, I'm being cast out into hell, that's a bit severe. 
No, because it's, it doesn't represent gifts. It represents the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. See, this servant who received the secret of the kingdom of heaven, the news about the kingdom of heaven, he didn't understand it. He didn't understand the master. He didn't understand what the kingdom of God was about. And he just brings it back. And that's why his punishment is cast this wicked servant, this worthless servant outside. You know, you think about the kingdom of God. You think about the properties about the kingdom of God. You think about the characteristics about the kingdom of God. And you find, you know what? Jesus, what Jesus is saying, it's starting to make a little more sense. The secrets of the kingdom of God. Right? I mean, you think about the kingdom, right? The kingdom of God was ushered into this world by a very unassuming man, a very unassuming birth, a very unassuming life. And this kingdom was completed through a death, a death penalty. And it was fulfilled through an unexpected resurrection. The kingdom of God came in Jesus, and no one expected it. It was, in a sense, a secret. But the people who understood, they got it. And so what do they do after Jesus resurrects and he ascends? What do they do? They go forth, and they start spreading the news of the kingdom of God. How did this kingdom grow? Not with the sword, not with power, not with money, but with feet with feet, on sandals, on the dusty roads of Palestine, Asia Minor, all throughout the Mediterranean. The kingdom spread through dusty feet, men and women who understood what the kingdom was about, who understood that the kingdom came in Jesus. And these nobodies, they got it. They received the secrets of the kingdom of God. They understood it, and they went out. And the kingdom grew. It multiplied just like the talents. The church knew. The early church knew that Jesus' heart, the master's heart, was in reaching the lost, making the good news available to all people, regardless of race, age, and gender. And they understood this, and they went out, and they did the master's work. They knew what the master wanted. They knew what the master rejoiced in. They knew what the kingdom of God, what it was about. That's what this parable is teaching. So this parable Please, don't just go away. You know, this, this isn't a message, um, you know, about living a more productive life in 2018. But it's a message for us, the recipients of the kingdom, who know the power, who know the master. And there are just three practical points that I just want to draw our attentions to. But first, I think this parable is teaching us to go out and to do kingdom work. To not be hesitant, to not be timid, to not be afraid of losing. You see, because when it comes to the kingdom of God, there is no loss when it comes to doing his work. The kingdom 
of God. The work in the kingdom of God always yields a return, maybe not in the way that we expect, but as Paul tells us, our labors in the Lord for the kingdom are never in vain. You know, for those of you who, you know, who are into cards, you might find this, you know, to be a little helpful, but, you know, right, if you have a winning hand, if you have the best hand, you play your cards. You don't look around and be afraid of what people are doing. You play your cards. You have the winning hand. You have the secrets of the kingdom of God, and you play it. You go all in. You're not afraid. You don't risk anything. You're not hesitant. You don't pull back. You put all your chips in because you have the winning hand. Kingdom work takes temerity, not timidity. We go forth not being hesitant or timid or fearful about losing. You know, and this is one of the reasons why this, this parable awoke me. You know, I became woke, as young people say, woke. When I realized that the, this, this was telling us, this was a message for the modern church, a message that the modern church desperately needed for us to, to not be afraid, to not hide our talents, to not hide the things that we have received, the, the secrets of the kingdom of God, knowing that Jesus saves, to not, to not just bury this in the ground, but to go forth and to see it going out. You know, and, and this message, when I understood it, it, it came to me as, wow, you know what, now is the time to work, to sow and to reap. Yeah, to harvest where there seems to be no opportunity, to go into those areas where it seems like there's nothing there. That's the heart of the master. Engaging not in the building of our own little kingdoms, but being faithful to the work of God's kingdom, the secret that we have received the news of the kingdom going out and doing its bidding, doing its work. The, the second point of application that I want to draw your attentions to is I want you to understand while we engage in kingdom work, and this parable isn't about, um, it isn't about us mainly working. But if you go back to the parable, what is the subject of the verb work. It's not the servant, but it's the talent. The talent is doing the work. In other words, it's the gospel, the news of Jesus that's actually doing the work. And the servants are just putting the talent to work. In other words, Christians, you and I, we're called to put the gospel to work to put the news of the kingdom of God to work. So just three practical applications. First, doing kingdom work. Second, knowing that it's the gospel that does the work. And the third thing that I just want to end with is this. I think this passage reminds us that the master is going to return. It's a message that reminds us that the Master will return, and he will settle accounts. Well done, good and faithful servant. 
That is the response and the praise that our Lord heaps upon those who goes out and puts the gospel to work. You know, I know this is the first week of 2018 and we're seven days in and um, I know a new year always brings new excitement, right? New year, new me, right? New resolution, new everything. But I think it might be a good time or a good occasion to not just thinking about to not just think about the new, but maybe think about the end. You know, I know I know when it comes to time, uh, you know, we 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 think of time as as being cyclical, right? 2017, January to December, December 31st, and now 2018, a new year begins. And and we sort of see time as being cyclical. But you know, January 1st, 2018 is only just the day after. December 31st, 2017. The Bible doesn't see time as cyclical, but the Bible sees time as linear. The Bible sees time as with a beginning and with an end. And that end is when our master returns. And I, and I want to draw your attentions to this as we begin the new year. Not just to a new beginning, but to the end. To when either the Lord will call you home or when the master will return. You know, a few months ago, we were, uh, my family and I, we were at a museum. Uh, it was a small museum, but they had this really nice um, special exhibition. It was, it, was a, it was an exhibition of the gladiators in the, in the Roman Greco world. So we were there, we were going about, and, um, you know, my, my wife starts explaining to our kids, uh, you know, these are people who lived many, many, you know, centuries ago, long, long, long time ago. And my oldest son, he asks, oh, where are they now? And she just says, hey, they're no longer with us. They died. And at that statement, I think my son Caleb, something just, you know, clicked in him. You know, death was always something that he just saw, but he started to understand death, and he started thinking about it. And he's like, oh, so death is a real thing. And he started to ask, oh, is death something that we all experience? My wife said, yes. And he said, he started thinking about then just some of the older people that he knows. What about uh, Harabaji, which means grandfather? What about granddad? And, she's, and my wife said, you know, eventually he's going to die too. And then he started to ask, what about mom and dad? What about me? Right? And, and then my wife is trying to field all these questions. And, you know, me being the, the selfish dad, right, I'm just off to the corner like, gosh, come on. Like, can't we just enjoy the exhibition without talking about these things? You know, I'm trying to avoid it. You know, my wife, she's actually there trying to explain the gospel to him. You know, there's death, but when, you know, in, in Jesus, there's life, and she's going on and on. And, you know, she starts talking about, that's why your dad, you know, he's a pastor. He wants to share these things. And I'm just off on the side, just like, come on, like, stop, stop. You know, let me just enjoy enjoy this time. Uh, but then after that time, uh, you know, he, he started to uh, think more and more about death. And maybe about once or twice a week before we go to bed, you know, every night we pray for them. But once or twice a week, you know, he starts asking questions about death again. And it starts making him really sad, right? And, you know, you know for me, again, you know, just a lazy and, and tired and uh, a bad dad, you know, every time I pray for him and he starts talking about these things and I'm just like, gosh, Caleb, can't you just act your age, you know? So you're, you're seven years old or six years old, you know, stop it, you know? Uh, but, you know, he started asking and he gets sad. He's like, oh, 
why, why, does, why did God make us to die? Why do we die? What is the end? I don't want to die. What happens when you die and I'm alone? And he starts asking all these questions. And, you know, again, at, at first it was, it was a little, oh, what is this guy doing? Like, I might have to seek some counseling for him. But then after a while, as he kept saying these things, and I'm just sitting there, and, and I started to think, yeah, hey, this guy is contemplating death. And it started to get to me, and I started to think more and more about it. And, and it reminded me once again that, you know, that there is an end. That all of us, according to the Bible, tells us that our lives are but a mist, a vapor that appears here today, but it's gone tomorrow. That our life is nothing. It's, it's a blade of grass. We're, we're nothing but, we're, we're, we're frail. And that death is, is our eventual end. I started to think about that and you know, this new year, it's, it's, it so happened that it coincided with the end of 2017 and beginning of 2018. And as we think about where we are right now, where you are at right now in your lives, where we as a congregation and a church, where we are at now, I think we need to be reminded that the master will return. The Bible uses a really interesting analogy. He says, the Bible says, when Jesus is not here, when Jesus is not present, when Jesus is away, it's, it's the time to work. It's the time to, to harvest. It's the time to sow. It's the time to reap. It's the time to do kingdom work. Because when the master returns, that's when we will enter into rest. The New Testament makes clear that now is the time to work. And when the master returns, that's when we will enter into his full joy. You know, as I was thinking more about Matthew 25 and just, you know, this, this idea of, you know, when the Lord calls me home or when the master returns and just the end of all these things, you know, I, I started to, I, I was reminded of a line that John Calvin said, John Calvin, who said to his, uh, his friends, you know, John Calvin was a, almost like a machine. He was, I mean, he was a man with a single devotion, and uh, he was a man who knew the kingdom, and he worked extremely, extremely hard for the kingdom. And you would think the opposite, right? Because John Calvin is the man who popularized uh, the teaching on predestination, right? And he's the guy who, you know, said, you know what, there's election. And you would think that if, Election is something that uh, he firmly believed in, that he would perhaps maybe have an inclination to be lazy, but no, far from it. Calvin, when he saw the, the need for the kingdom work in Geneva, he went there and he labored tirelessly, tirelessly. Now, I, I don't have time to get into his, his full um, story, but Calvin was a man who never wasted time never wasted a minute of his time. He was always working, always working to the, to the point that his body was wracked in pain. And even on his deathbed, his friends were saying, hey, listen, take it easy from your labors. And do you know how John Calvin replied? On his deathbed, he said this, why would you have me take it easy? Would you have me find, would you have the Lord 
find me idle when he comes? Would you have the Lord find me idle when he comes? This is a man who understood the kingdom, what it was about, and the opportunity for the spreading of the good news. Church, friends, there is an end. Some of you are closer to it than I, maybe. And there is an end when the master returns, when he will surely set all accounts. And until the day we enter into his full joy, until the day we enter into his rest, may we continue to labor and give ourselves for the sake of the kingdom. Let's pray.